Do you know what time it is? It's that time again with Cindy Gern, who has the latest news about employment trends, current opportunities, and innovative strategies for managing a career on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. Hi, everybody. Thank you for uh, listening to the Workforce Show today. We have a fabulous, fabulous guest, uh, and we have an assistant interviewer, a host of the uh, of the show, Avocado host, Brendan Freehart, with us. Um, hi, Brendan. Hey there. So we are together going to interview Kirk Bourne, B-O-R-N-E, he is the chief scientist, data scientist of, uh, of uh, Booz Allen and Hamilton, and he's the executive uh, advisor to them. Uh, welcome, Kirk. Hello, welcome. Thank you. Now, I have uh, a bunch of questions I want to ask him, but let's start off by first uh, telling everybody where, uh, a little bit about Kirk, and he can chime in, and, and Brennan, you, you, you chime in, too. Uh, he went to, he has his PhD from California Institute of Technology, and he majored, I don't know, you know, major for a PhD. He, he took his, uh, his PhD in astrophysics and space science. So first of all, can you tell me what that degree does? I mean, did you look out into space and hope to see something? What is that degree? Well, uh, uh Doing research in astrophysics uh, is a wide variety of things. Sometimes it's using telescopes uh, to gather data and make discoveries. Sometimes it's building uh, computer models uh, to try to simulate and uh, model things that we see in the universe and hopefully derive understanding and knowledge and insights that way. Uh, then there's uh, another aspect of astrophysics, which is purely theoretical. Uh, if you want to think of something like Albert Einstein is sitting down writing down his uh, equations, <laughs> For cosmology, that's, so, so you have the, the full range of uh, observational, experimental, computational, uh, theoretical astrophysics, and uh, so more these days than those days, there's also now the data-intensive side of astrophysics, where we actually uh, start looking through databases using data mining, machine learning, data science techniques to find uh, previously undiscovered patterns or trends in the data. So it's really focused on discovery at all times. I mean, that's the whole point of research and science is to do discovery. And so we use all those different approaches and uh, hopefully discover something useful. Did you? Uh, (laughs) Well, uh, every every scientist finds things that are new and that uh, are published in journals, and that's how one makes a career is publishing uh, original research. Now, whether those particular discoveries are going to make front-page news is a completely different story. Because that's what's <laughs> well, what is the most interesting thing you found that when you searched the universe for, for, for data and searched, you know, did your exploration? Well, I guess uh, my first 15 minutes of fame, I guess I would say, uh, using the Hubble Space Telescope uh, over 20 years ago, to study a particular class of galaxies, which we call ring galaxies. So it's a galaxy that's shaped like a, a ring, if we imagine like a smoke ring, and it's caused by one 
galaxy running into another galaxy, and it's like throwing a pebble in a pond. You get this expanding ring, the waves as you move out from the, the point of impact, and the exact same thing happens in galaxies that are made up of lots of gas and stars. That, that, that the, there's a wave that propagates out, you know, from the center on out, and this ring. Uh, in a case where a galaxy has lots of gas, generates a firestorm of new star birth. And so this particular galaxy was fairly well known uh, to, to wow. a very limit of astronomers. It, it was called the Cartwheel Galaxy because it sort of looked like the, a cartwheel of an old, an old wagon. <laughs> uh, and uh, when we did the Hubble imaging of it, the first time ever high-resolution color images it was just it was just a spectacular like i said firestorm of, of new star birth that was happening all across this galaxy it was, and uh, i mean it was that made the news across the world i mean it was a news week and uh that's so cool and uh it, i actually have textbooks on my shelf written in languages i can't even read like a, there's a dutch <laughs> textbook where i recognize the word cartwheel and i recognize my name <laughs> that <was> book. True. <laughs> that's the only the word kirkborn yeah <laughs> so uh, hey do you do you know it does that relate to the dark hole theory well uh not not for, not directly i mean of course everything is connected of course i mean if there's like dark matter and galaxies, mm-hmm. this affects how they evolved. Uh, at the center of ga- most galaxies, we we believe there's a, a, a mm-hmm. massive black hole, uh, which is a completely different thing. And that black hole is uh, the gravitational collapse of a massive amount of stars. And, and for the longest time, we didn't know quite how that started out. But we think now that these types of collisions are the type that I was discovering actually led to the collapse of uh, massive gas clouds and massive stars to uh, in, in the center of galaxies that make these massive, which actually we call them supermassive black holes. I'd be happy if we just talked about astrophysics the whole time. So I'm going to ask another question, which is, are you are you dubious? <laughs> I was kind of no. joking there. Are you dubious on the, on the theory of dark matter in cosmology? No. Uh, not really. No, it's, it's proven by a million different observations from different perspectives. I mean, uh, I, but I guess I would say that to, you know, to be the objective scientist is that, that all, we, all we have is a model, which we call dark matter, to explain the data. And, uh, and, and the data, to back up and a little bit, can you explain dark matter as, as sort of why it's a sort of theoretical underpinning to a lot of cosmology? Like, basically, it's a, something we can't detect and and kind of but it proves what exactly? Well, uh, it, it's. I guess I would say it's not totally correct to say we don't detect it. We don't. We don't see it in visible light. But uh, I'm listening to you on the phone, and I don't see you right now. But I believe you're there because I'm hearing you. Okay. So <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't mean to be facetious, but I mean there's other uh, types of waves in the universe, not just uh, electromagnetic waves. I mean, so gravity waves. Uh, and gravity itself. So, so we see galaxies moving around each other and moving around in the clusters, and 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 these big groups, of, which we call clusters of galaxies, have certain um, dimensions and and the speeds of galaxies that all con- are consistent with the existence of far more matter mass inside those objects in those clusters than we can see in visible light. So there's something there that's that's gravitationally present and uh, every technique we have to measure gravitational pull 
shows that it's there. So there's it, no doubt that it's there. It's just there's no visible light coming from it. So so it, it's a good lesson in, in, in all sort of objective scientific discovery is that uh, sometimes the signal comes to you in a different way than the, the channel that you that you might expect it to come through. And so it, it, it's not it's not the uh, indulgingness. I guess you would call it sort of observational bias in astronomy that uh, most astronomy historically up, up until recent decades was optical astronomy, that is, through visible light. And so when the, when the astronomers did not see the cause of this mass, it was called dark matter. But, but, but if... Uh, I think you know, Cindy declared it. enough science, by the way. I, I, no, I mean, I, 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 this, is, this is part of the science that I find enjoyable. I, I can't talk about it very much because I don't have the knowledge, but it's very fascinating. But that was only the, the end of his academic, uh, formal academic career, uh, which we can talk about later on. But his undergraduate was at Louisiana State University. Did you graduate in three years? And I, I calculated that. Was that right? Uh, yes, it was correct. <laughs> he, he, and, he grad, and, he, and he is every mother's dream of a son. He has all sorts of awards, he's gotten degrees in everything imaginable, uh, and uh, Phi Beta Phi Kappa Phi, Sigma Phi in physics. Uh, anything I'm missing, what's the biggest uh, award that you've won in uh, academic, academia? Well, I guess when I graduated at, from LSU, which was three years actually, <laughs> Uh, at that time, uh, uh, when I got, uh, I graduated with a 4.0, and uh, at LSU, a, a student who graduates with a perfect 4.0 gets what they call the university medal. And uh, uh, things have changed in the last 40 years in terms of uh, the ability for students to get 4.0s. But when I graduated from LSU, uh, they were in about their 120th year of existence, and they had only given the university medal 27 times in those 100-plus years. So I was, I was uh, very proud of that uh, that moment and uh, that achievement. Yeah, so I would be too, and you, and you did it in less than uh, the normal time. So why does every I mean, I've heard of L, uh, LSU uh, frequently, and, and people who've gone there majored in science. What is there about LSU that attracts attracted you? Are you from Louisiana? I am from Louisiana, and I'm actually from Baton Rouge. And uh, almost every member of my family who has gone to college went to LSU, so it seemed to be like the thing to do, right? <laughs> it was. <laughs> Blood is thicker than water, so I, I had other opportunities. But uh, you know, that's the, that was the family tradition, and that's I never really thought about going anywhere else. Yeah, well, I've, I've heard good things about it, and uh, I was wondering why you know, why LSU. But uh, you, you you've explained you now work at Booz Allen, but you you are also um, on the board of several organizations that have to do with uh, STEM and. Uh, and uh, and you are. Uh, well, why don't you tell us what what boards would you like to tell us about? You're on uh, Aries, after informatics, after statistics, and you've taught at George Mason for for 15 years, I think. 
Yeah, I was there for. Uh, I was there up until three years ago, so I spent uh, a dozen years, <laughs> uh, twelve years there, and uh, t- taught uh, data science. Though my uh, title was professor of astrophysics, and then uh, there was this addition, computational science, in my title, and I, and so our program was actually computational data science. So I, I taught that in that program. Did you a dozen. did you program in Fortran? Uh, not at the university, but in my in my youth, it was all Fortran. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all my science, Sorry. all my scientific work was in Fortran, but I did a lot of uh, development when I worked at NASA, which was the 18 years prior to my George Mason career. I did a lot of. Uh, I'm sorry for keeping derailing this conversation. Continue, Kirk. I know. He, he, what about, did you say you worked at NASA? Did you work at NASA? Yeah, I was. Uh, I worked for ten years on the Hubble Space Telescope project. Oh wow! Uh, part of that time I there, I was the uh, project scientist for the Hubble Science Data Archive. So I really like love for data, and after doing that, uh, Hubble, working with the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, Science Institute for 10 years, which is based in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins University. Then I moved to uh, a, a contract, a government contract position, where I was actually managing uh, scientists and programmers and database people uh, for NASA in the uh, the Goddard Space Flight Center, which is based in Greenbelt, Maryland. And so I was a, uh, first a department manager, where I was managing the astrophysics data people, and then uh, ultimately I got promoted to program manager, where we were managing the data systems from the satellites, both in astronomy, as well as planetary astronomy, and also um, heliophysics, that is uh, solar physics data. Uh, So heliophysics is more broad than solar physics, and that solar physics sort of focuses on the sun, and heliophysics uh, refers to all the physics that takes place uh, in the solar system caused by the sun. So plasma, you know, if you think about aurora on Earth, you know, the northern lights or southern lights, if you're in the southern hemisphere, uh, these are caused (laughs) by highly energetic particles ejected from the sun that impinge upon the Earth. Thank goodness we have a protective magnetic field that channels those charged particles down to the north and south polar regions. If, if we didn't have that magnetic field, we would probably all have died of cancer hundreds of thousands of years ago. That's a really cheery way to put it. Be here today, so. <laughs> all right, I'm going to ask a, a, a dumb question, but do you, do you kind of miss ever doing that type of like hard science for something that is more business application? Or is this a new frontier for you that you find it, it really kind of engaging? I, you know, I'm kind of leading the question here. How do you feel about transitioning? Is a better way to put it. Yes, I think the uh, I'm I'm very comfortable with it now. Uh, but it was, it, it's you know it's been sort of a 20 year journey. I mean, I, I I got out of graduate school in the early 80s, and these positions I've just described working you know with uh, with NASA on different contracts and different projects was an 18 year uh, path <laughs> itself. And yeah. uh, toward, towards the end of those 18 years, as I was doing more and more uh, science data management, and then as the, our data set sizes started growing astronomically, that was a joke, our astronomy data sets <laughs> were growing astronomically. I got it, I got it. <laughs> uh, I, I started seeing the value in data science and machine learning and things like that. And so that was about 20, that was about 20 years ago. And so, sort of, uh, it was sort of back and forth for me. I was focusing a lot on the data science and machine learning, and data mining activities, while at the same time keeping my hand in a lot of astrophysics research. 
And uh, finally, uh, there was a point where I realized that the, the, the growth in data in the world was not just in the sciences, and certainly not just in astronomy, but other sciences, but everywhere else, too, in healthcare, cybersecurity, national security, retail, marketing, even in sports. I mean, so data everywhere, and I, I was just convinced, and this was about you know, 16, 17 years ago, convinced at that point that we really needed a, a workforce future workforce that's trained in the art and science of dealing with data. And so I left my 18-year career stop at NASA, and my next career stop was at uh, George Mason University, where I was fortunate to be offered a, a faculty position and ultimately became a tenured professor. Can you explain to, to our listeners very succinctly what machine learning is and what data mining is so that mm. people will have a, a, a sense of what you're all about? Sure. Well, uh, uh, in simplest terms, machine learning is a, a class of math algorithms, so math techniques, uh, that are used to find patterns in data, basically. So patterns can be trends. Uh, it can be like clusters, segments in the, in the data. It can be correlations. But uh, it's, it's just simple, uh, simply mathematics. I mean, not simple mathematics, but simply mathematics. And so when we apply these, this particular type of mathematics to data, okay, to, to look and, dis and discover patterns and trends in data, we call that data mining, or more specifically nowadays, we use the phrase data science. So data science is more broadly about the whole um, discovery and uh, communication and use of data for discovery and decision making. So machine learning is the, the set of algorithms, uh, data science and, um, and AI, if you will, are, are the applications of those algorithms. So AI is the application of machine learning to, to machines or, or uh, actions, if you will, actionable uh, intelligent op you know, operations of one kind or another. So uh, I always tell students that if you if you apply machine learning to data, we call it data mining. If we apply it to robotics or, or to machines, we call it artificial intelligence. But it's it's really the same underlying set, sets of mathematical algorithms. It's the data mining. It's the under, underlying underlying field that feeds all these all these new innovations as well. So so let's talk about that from from this from the perspective of jobs. Um, where do you see your field of data science? I mean, you've managed people. You, you've been in the field of both sides of the house. Uh, where do you see the future of, of your field and of data science, uh, say, in the next 10 years going? Well, I think uh, pretty much uh, all the employment surveys and uh, the, uh, the the job uh, these massive job boards that you can now find on the internet of all of all kinds, all sort of list data scientists as sort of the number one job, the number one career choice, both in terms of demand, uh, salary, uh, quality of life, everything. Because it's because it's, once people get into it, they realize it's really about discovery and exercising your curiosity. So it's it's actually doing and exercising what humans are really good at, which is seeing. Things, seeing patterns and reacting to them and responding to them and doing something about it. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of like natural human. Uh, 
And so businesses and organizations and federal agencies and everybody now is collecting so much digital information, so much data that they all, all these organizations want to hire data scientists to help them understand their business, understand their organization. And it's not just what has happened, but what will happen. Because when you see these trends and patterns, you can be predictive about it. So there's an enormous demand. I mean, just unbelievably hundreds of thousands of positions open in the data science field. And when I went to George Mason University in 2003, we were creating the world's first undergraduate degree program in data science at that time. And there was no other competition until like 2012. And all of a sudden, there was like enormous world interest in, in data uh, for several reasons, which we can get into if you wish. But the, but the, the fundamental reason was that uh, there was a, uh, a survey by a McKinsey group that found that there would be a shortage of over 150,000 data scientists and over a million data science managers in the coming decade. And all of a sudden, everybody woke up to this complete transform- digital transformation taking place under our feet that we weren't paying attention to. And so every, almost every university now, uh, college, university, two-year college, and even a lot of independent uh, boot camps, if you will, training academies, have data science tra- training programs. And so one might say that, uh, gee, we must be filling that gap now and, and because of this, this essentially exponential growth in training opportunities and, and exponential growth in the number of, of candidates being trained for these jobs. But the reality is the jobs available are growing at a faster exponential than the, than the growth of available candidates. So I'd say in the next 10 years, this is only going to get worse before it gets better in terms of the, the demand is enormous because the, the value creation and innovation that's possible, discovery, innovation, and value creation, sort of the big, the big <laughs> outcomes of data science, using all these data, uh, every business, every organization, every agency, every every entity wants to take advantage of that and use that and so they're all seeking the right kind of people to do it yeah so it's really the best time in the world to, to be uh, to be doing this profession because uh, it's, it's it's such huge demand and uh, again it's 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 actually doing stuff that people love doing I, I talk to young people at conferences all the time and they're just so excited to be involved in a stem career I mean people who just is this just, truly a stem career or is it a hybrid it's definitely STEM. I mean, it's science, technology, actually STEAM. It's science, tech, technology, art. engineering, art, and math. It's all of that. I mean, all those, you need all of that. But you don't need to be like uh, what we call the unicorn. I mean, you know, the people like to say this expression, data science is a team sport. And, uh, yeah, maybe maybe somebody invented that six years ago, but uh, a lot of people claim and they're claiming to have invented that statement, but it's been around for a long time. And so the, the, the team, the, the data science team in an organization, re, you know, requires all of those different types of skills. And so it's definitely a STEM discipline. And, and I'm finding students who actually claim they hated math and science they com- completely turned around and became very excited about learning math and science because of this field. Well, you know, uh, you know Cognizant uh, Company, the one that does the Center for the Future of Work? Yes. Have you heard of them? They did a report, and they have listed 21 jobs that they think uh, will guarantee people employment through at least into 2028. And uh, all most of them are <laughs> in the data science area. They from the Walker Talker. What is that? Walker Talker. I don't know. 
that's at the uh, low science area, but still in the in the box to uh, quantum machine learning analyst. That's the highest end of the job. So uh, all these jobs require a degree in engineering or science. You're saying? Uh, no, I wouldn't say it that way. Interesting. Personal data broker, man, machine um, teaming manager. What? Uh, I get this question all the time: Does is a college degree required to be a data scientist? And the answer is no. I mean, you don't have to be data. You don't have to be college degree at all. However, I always tell people: Don't let me, don't let that fool you. If you actually want to have a, a, a successful long-term career with, with professional development. And uh, and growth in your career, then uh, then the college degree is essential because that is what you know employers and, and uh, you know exec- executives and companies or or higher up people in, in any kind of organization, even academia anywhere, is going to promote and and advance the careers of those people who are more well rounded and and educated. But in spite of that, it, it is completely possible to get a job in data science without a college degree. In fact, a lot of people are doing that because the demand is enormous. And the salaries are matching that enormity, so so people are jumping right into it with uh, with no college degree. Uh, but I encourage them not to forget that as they go through life because of the the, the long term value there. Yeah, that's that's important to note that uh, you know your point about having a degree to get ahead and to stay ahead is is important. But to get into the field, you don't have to have uh, a college degree, or if you have a college degree. You don't have to have it in a uh, science technology area, do you? I mean, you can acquire Correct. that knowledge. Okay. Nope. Uh, because, because the fundamental, the fundamental uh, success of the data science to me points uh, is really pointed toward the aptitudes, not the, I mean, the skills. If you, so, one of the aptitudes is you have to be a curious person. You have to be like a critical thinker, creative person good at problem solving. And so that could be any type of person. I, I mean, I've talked with people from you know, sort of major banks. One time I talked with this person, she said that the, their best data scientist was a, an art major. Another person mm-hmm. said his the, the, you know, their best data scientist was a philosophy major. And so it, it, it comes back to what I said a few moments ago, that, that students who shied away from math and science discover this field and they immediately start learning the math and the science, even though they weren't trained that way. And, and the reason, again, goes back to our fundamental nature as humans to be crea- creative and curious, inquisitive, question-asking creatures, right? And so ever since we, the first humans crawled out of the cave, we, our survival depended upon pattern recognition from the signals that the world was giving us. And so is this uh, animal going to eat me or is it something that I can eat? Now, is, this, uh, is, this wild, is this wild berry something... Uh, that I can eat, or will it kill me? <laughs> I mean, so we, so we were we we grew and evolved and survived as a result of our ability to take information, knowledge, data, if you want to call it, take the evidence presented to us, and and derive knowledge from the patterns we see in the data. And so that's what humans do naturally. Even newborn children do this, and that's why I, I always emphasize the importance of bringing in data literacy and statistical literacy and, and the concepts and at very young ages, even like in kindergarten even, because it's, it's all about, the world is all about digital information now that people live, breathe, and think about this. Uh, they, they can bring great value in the, long, to the, in the long term to whoever they work for and wherever they work. Mm. 
Yeah, um, I totally understand and I totally agree. And we want people, all sorts of people, at the beginning of their careers and towards, I mean, room for people who have a, had a career and who want to go into data science. There's always room for for people if they want to. Uh, I, one job that started was in the 21 job list that I thought I could do was the data detective. Ah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> they, they said that somebody who likes mysteries and he was like searching for truth, et cetera, the data detective. Okay, uh, our time is out. I've, I hope that you will come back and we'll, we're going to have a conversation uh, by yourself with with uh, uh, with anybody you want. So uh, I've enjoyed this very much. Do you have anything to say, Brendan, before we sign off on this? Thank you for coming, Kirk. It was great talking to you. I appreciate yeah. the invitation. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to The Workforce Show. This interview and others can be found at WERA.FM or at CareerCentralOnline.com. Thank you for listening. Until the next time.